Sunday, but most Sundays I'll say we're, we're a part of something much bigger than just 6-8 church, and um, wanted to show you that to help give you some perspective that what God is doing is, is worldwide. And like we said last week on Easter Sunday, that, that uh, what the disciples had in mind would, would be way surpassed, far beyond their wildest expectations, that even if all of Jerusalem had come to know Christ and put their faith in Christ, it would be just a drop in the bucket compared to what has actually taken place now in the church around the world. It is a, a move of God powered by the Spirit of God. And so it's epic. It really is. There's nothing like it. There is no other uh, organization that can really claim what has happened in the last 2,000 years. There are others that have a lot of followers. Christianity has the most followers around the world today. There are others who are close, but um, they, they've been around for a long time. They've been around. They precede Christianity. Christianity didn't start until Jesus died. And so... Um, I'm not exactly sure on all the numbers, so if I'm wrong, you can correct me. You can say, I don't care. Christianity is a big deal. Um, but so anyway, so that's kind of last week. The resurrection, the church started, the church launched at the resurrection when the disciples finally saw. And then there's some tremendous evidence that we see in the Bible. And if you go by God's own word, then for a testimony to be valid, you need the witness of two or three people. And Jesus, after he resurrected from the dead, appeared to over 500 people. So we see with, with truth and validity the fact that Jesus Christ did rise from the dead. And if he can rise from the dead, then he has the power to conquer whatever issue you have in your life, and he has the power to, to take this grace, this saving grace, and spread it to the ends of the, wor- ends of the earth. But a, an underlooked part of the story is what happens after that. So we have Jesus, he rises from the dead. For the next 40 days, he appears to many witnesses, is what we read in the Bible, and that's over 500. And then on the 40th day, he ascends. So Jesus, he's with his followers, teaching them, you know, just spending time with them, does all these cool tricks where, you know, they're praying together in a locked room, and he just shows up in their midst, and then he disappears, and all these cool things, just kind of a glimpse, I think, of what our resurrected bodies are going to be like and be capable of, and so that's kind of cool, but uh, I'm not going to get into a deep theology of resurrection bodies this morning. Um, But So for 40 days, he spends time with his followers, and then at the beginning of Acts, like we read last week, we see Jesus has, again, kind of gathered with those followers who are there, and this is what we call the ascension. The ascension is important because first, uh, we read in, in parts of Scripture that Jesus was returning to his glory, which he had left to come to earth. So Jesus left his glory in heaven and came and walked on earth and clothed in human flesh, and now he has returned to his glory and sits at the right hand of the Father. Remember, the disciples wanted to sit at the right and the left of Jesus, but Jesus said, hey, that's not for me to decide. That's been decided long before you ever existed, so let's not talk about that. I'm going to go back and now sit at the right hand of my Father, the position of power next to the Father and the, and the God of all things. So Jesus left and then returned. So he had to go back first to complete the story as a part of it. But but in John chapter 16, we see a great reason why Jesus says, hey, I have to go back. Here is why I have to leave. John chapter 16, this isn't in your notes for today, um, but this is just to kind of catch us up with where we are right now. 
Jesus said, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. This is before the crucifixion, before anything had happened. But he's talking about what's going to take place not only around the crucifixion, but in the times after that. He says, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I've told them to you. So he was talking about what would take place, the persecution that would actually lead to what we call the diaspora, which leads the church out into the ends of the earth. And so in 70, 70, that's when uh, Jerusalem ended up falling and everything kind of fell apart and that kind of just pushed all the Christians out of town. And leading up to that, they were kind of pushed out. And so that actually came true, what he said there in John chapter 16. But then uh, the rest of verse 4 says, I didn't say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. So in other words, I was with you. You had the presence. You had the presence of God, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ was in Christ when he was on the earth. The Holy Spirit would, then, would empower him. We see the Holy Spirit coming on Christ like a dove on his baptism. So we see this, this uh, connection there. But he says, I didn't say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. So my presence was with you. You didn't really need me to say this. But now I'm getting ready to go back to him who sent me. There's the, there's the return that he's talking about. He was sent, so he has to return. He had a return ticket to go back. And none of you asked me, where are you going? Jesus had been talking about how he has to return to the Father. No one's asking him, hey, where are you going? Why aren't you telling us where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Listen to this. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. But back to that verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But since Jesus went away, since Jesus ascended, you know, I've often, I've often said before I really understood what was taking place here, I thought, man, wouldn't it be cool if Jesus was just still around walking the earth today so we could, you know, just kind of go and talk to him and ask him questions and see him face to face? Wouldn't that be cool? I think that would be awesome. But if, if he was here, then the presence of God would be limited to Jesus where he is, and that would be the only place. But because he left, Acts chapter 1 can, can start to lead into the story of the church. So here they are, they're standing around, and Jesus is talking. When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Remember, we talked, they still weren't quite getting it. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Jesus was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way 
as you saw him go. And then in Acts chapter 2, like we talked about last week, the Holy Spirit comes and fills all of the believers who are gathered together who had waited for an additional 10 days from the point that Jesus ascended until the 50th day after he, after he had left. And now we have what we call Pentecost, and this is a, something we celebrate as the church. It was a holiday that already existed, and we just took it over because Jesus has a better plan for it anyway. And so he, we take it over because it becomes Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes, and now we see all of the believers are filled with the Spirit, and they're speaking of the power and the mighty works of God And all of those who are gathered from all over the earth are now hearing of the works of God in their own language, and we see now the power of God as it fills Peter, and that leads him to preach this sermon at which after he preaches and fills the minds of those who are there with the truth of God because he now has received the spirit of truth, he can say and share the truth, so he's sharing the truth of God with those who believe, and at the end we see that 3,000 people were added to their number, and then it goes up to 5,000, and then more and more as we go through the book of Acts. See, this is a part of our faith that I don't think we talked about nearly enough growing up. This was something that I didn't really hear about until I got to college, and uh, I grew up in a more, uh, you might call it charismatic. It wasn't charismatic. It was holiness, Pentecostal kind of tradition. So you would think I would have heard about it more, but I didn't. And I actually didn't even hear about it at my school. I heard about it when I was listening to the radio on the way home from college going to Ohio, and I heard Dr. James McDonald share about the contrast between what we try to live in our own strength and our own power, living a righteous life, and what he called the empowered life. And that was the very first time I had heard the concept because up until then, I had been, like many of us, maybe even most of us, been trying to do the works and live out the works of Christianity in my own power and my own strength. Anyone else guilty of that? Anyone willing to admit? Yeah. We have tried, right? I mean, we think we can just work and we can labor and we can do by our own might the things that have been tried for thousands and thousands of years and failed by the might of people throughout the history, not only of Christianity, but prior to Christ's coming. We see that we could not live up to the expectations of the law. But when we do so, when we think, when we're trying to live by our own power and we're pursuing this thing, we think, I just need to try a little bit harder. I need to strive a little bit more. It's kind of foolish. I mean, that is exhausting, isn't it? I mean, it's draining because you are trying, we are trying by our own energy, by our own exertion of might to accomplish something that has already been accomplished for us in Christ. Isn't that kind of foolish? Isn't that kind of silly? But what we need on the flip side is what we call the empowered life. This is something that I don't think, we've we've talked about it a fair amount here at the church, but I want to talk about it more. We need what we call the, the filling of the Holy Spirit to live by the power of the Holy Spirit, the life that he has called us to live. Now, I just want to kind of go through really quickly 10 things, and, and it will be quick, I promise, 10 things that we, that we get by having the Holy Spirit fill us. No. Now, so we've, we've covered the idea that Jesus ascended, and now we just saw that he sent the Holy Spirit. Okay, so, so what? The Holy Spirit. All that I've ever heard about the Holy Spirit is that it kind of makes some people do crazy things from time to time. Is that what the Spirit is about? Well, no, that's not what the Holy Spirit is about. First, the indwelling Spirit comes to a soul dead in sin and creates new life. And if you have If you have a pen and you want to write on these cards or something, I'll give you some scripture scripture references for all of this. That's Titus 3.5. 
This is the new birth that Jesus spoke of in John chapter 3, verse 1 through 8. So, so when you, we say this all the time. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of God that raised Christ from the dead, that resurrected Christ from the dead, now raises us from the dead, and we receive new life. And that's what we're going to celebrate next week is, is those who are saying, you know what, I am ready to be buried with him in his death and raised to new life in Christ. That's what we celebrate and remember at baptism. So the indwelling spirit comes to a soul dead in sin and creates new life. Number two, the indwelling spirit confirms to the believer that he or she belongs to the Lord and is an heir of God and a fellow heir or a co-heir with Christ. That's Romans chapter 8, verse 15 through 17. So now you've received life, and now you are a co-heir with Christ, and you have the confirmation because you've received the spirit that you actually belong to Christ. Number three, the indwelling spirit installs the new believer as a member of Christ's universal church, and this is the baptism of the Spirit according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. So now you've received this, this life, you've received the Spirit, you are an heir, a co-heir with Christ, and now the Spirit installs you and implants you in the body of Christ, the global universal church of God, and now you are a part of that church. You're a permanent part of that body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Number four, the indwelling spirit gives spiritual gifts, God-given abilities for service to the believer to edify the church and serve the Lord effectively for his glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. So now you're a part of this church, and because you're a part of this church, God's church, this is God's church, we are part of God's big church and the move of God that is going on right now around the world. Because you're a part of that, the Spirit is going to give you gifts, going to empower you to do things that you couldn't do before, combine them with your strengths that you were born with, that God designed you with, and now you have a specific purpose that God puts you not only on this earth for, but also in this church for. He wants you to use those gifts for the building up of the body and the church. Number five, this indwelling spirit, the spirit of God dwelling in us helps the believer understand and apply Scripture to his daily life. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. The spirit helps you understand the Bible. Right, So if you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you're reading God's Word, you can pray like we pray every single Sunday, and I pulled it up for you. We're going to keep praying this every Sunday. You can even just pray this prayer. Father, open the eyes of my heart to receive your truth. Teach me to live in your ways and to identify and reject the lies of the enemy. Just pray, Father, help me to receive your truth, to understand your truth, to know your truth, that it makes sense to me because the Spirit helps us understand and the Spirit helps teach us God's Word so we can live in God's ways. Number six, the Spirit enriches our prayer life and intercedes for us in prayer. Romans chapter 8, verse 26 through 27. We're going to cover more on that in just a second. The Spirit empowers the yielded, someone who has turned their life over believer to live for Christ, to do His will. That's an important one. The Spirit empowers us, someone who's put our faith in Jesus Christ, who has, who have, as we said earlier, we sang the words, surrendered our lives, surrendered everything to Christ. We've yielded control of our life over to Christ. Now we have the power, because of the Holy Spirit, to live for Christ and do His will. 
So this thing that we've been striving and trying and working at our own might and our own power to do, now we have the power of the Spirit to do and live this life and do it like we've been called to do. Galatians 5, verse 16, if you want to look that up. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, leads the believer in paths of righteousness. Romans 8, 14. Number eight, the indwelling Spirit gives evidence of new life by producing the fruit of the Spirit in the believer's life. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. You hear me say these all of the time. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you are in Christ and the Spirit is in you, which if you've received Christ, you have the Spirit. So the Spirit then will be producing this fruit in your life. Love, not the world's kind of love, but God's unconditional kind of love. Joy. When was the last time you said you could, you could say that you had joy, peace? Remember, this is the gospel of peace that we're a part of. This is God's gospel that brings peace. And now what is the peace? It's not, not peace between countries, although that can have a residual effect in that way. The peace is now we are at peace with God. We are no longer fighting and rebelling against God, so we now have peace, and so we become peaceful people, and we produce peace in the world around us. Love, joy, peace, patience. How many of us are very patient people? I'm not very patient all the time. I try to be, but I, I still need more fruit of patience. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. I have to go back to the beginning just like I have to do with the alphabet before I figure out what letter is after Q. I have to go A, B, C, D, E, F, G, S. I have to go love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. That's the kindness we talk about, right? Mercy. Do justice, love, mercy. This should be a fruit of our life. Are we producing this fruit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Some translations, I think, say righteousness. Faithfulness. We're faithful. That's, that's the fruit of the Spirit in us. We're faithful. We are committed people. We are faithful to God. We are faithful to our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're faithful to our church. And self-control. Gentleness, I think, was in there I missed. Self-control. Yeah, love is patient. First Corinthians five, or First Corinthians chapter thirteen. So the fruit, the indwelling spirit, then produces the fruit of the spirit in our life. Number nine, the indwelling spirit is grieved when the believer sins. Sins. Ephesians four verse thirty, and he, the spirit, convicts the believer to confess his sin to the Lord, so that fellowship is restored. First John one nine. You hear that little voice telling you, don't do what you're about to do. Don't do what you're thinking about doing. Don't do it. Don't do it. That is the Spirit empowering you to stop doing that. And then the Spirit is grieved when you do that. And then He leads you to confess that to God so that you're back in right standing with Him. And number 10, the indwelling Spirit seals the believer until the day of redemption so that the believer's arrival in the Lord's presence is guaranteed after this life. Ephesians 1 13 and 14, and we were talking about that a little bit for Easter, about, you know, getting a 6-8 seal and just kind of marking people with it, and I wanted to go a little bit farther and just kind of get a branding iron and just make it a permanent thing because uh, it seemed like it might be just a little bit extreme for Easter Sunday. So we'll save that for a week down the road. Um, Oh, but you've been marked with a seal. Now you have the Holy Spirit, and so now the Holy Spirit is a seal. That means you are authentic, right? That, that was what that seal was, that, that they would send a message 
right? You are now a messenger for Christ. You are now a messenger. You have the message of the gospel. You have the truth of God's word because you have the spirit of truth living and residing in you. And now you have the responsibility to be a messenger for Jesus Christ. And because you have the Holy Spirit, you have the seal of approval stamped on your life, that, that seal of authenticity, right? Before you get any kind of fancy, you know, computer, you know, kind of will say, you know, seal of authenticity to make sure you're getting this product from the right place. Apple used to do that. I don't know if they still do that anymore. I haven't bought an Apple product in a while, but there'll be this little sticker that you kind of have to tear off, right, that says this was an authentic Apple product. Well, this is your seal. makes you authentic, and that means that what you're sharing, the truth of God's Word that you're sharing and the message that you're sharing is true and authentic as well because you are not speaking on your own behalf. You are speaking on behalf of God and His message and His mission, and you're sharing that now out into the world, and you have joined together with billions, with a B, of other believers, and you are going out and spreading this message, and all of our message is in agreement that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no way to the Father except through Him, so we have to repent and believe in His truth and surrender our lives and follow Him and receive the Spirit and now have the power to live this life, and now you go and do what we have done. Right? That, that, is, the, that, is, the, that is the life that we've been called into. It's a life of empowerment, being empowered to live this kind of life. You don't have to do it on your own strength. And if you're trying to do it on your own strength, you probably need to repent, which means to stop and turn away from that, trying to do it on your own, and ask God to help you and give you the power to live that kind of life. But I want to spend the rest of our time this morning in Hebrews chapter 8 through Hebrews chapter 10. And I am going to read most of this for us, so just bear with me. I'll do my best to not bore you to tears with the reading, but I think the whole context here really just, just leads into what we've been talking about and just puts this nice capstone on everything we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. And the author of Hebrews does a much better job at saying it than I can preach it, so we're just going to trust the Word of God today. Hebrews 8, verse 1. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. The author of Hebrews has spent some time talking about the old high priest in the old system and how Jesus Christ came and he was the new high priest and he trumped everything. He was better than everything that had ever existed before because of who he was and all of this. And now he's getting to the point of why he's saying this, why he's making this argument. We have such a high priest, one who is, listen, seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Remember, remember the, in the Old Testament, they had the tabernacle, right? And so they was kind of set up this tabernacle. He's going to explain this a little bit, so I'm not going to get into a, a lot of detail, but they'd have this tabernacle. That was kind of where God's presence resided. And then remember Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration. He wanted to set up a tent. He wanted to set up a tabernacle so that, so that we could kind of stay here and enjoy God's presence. But Jesus knew something better was coming. So, hey, we're not going to do this now. Shut up, Peter, and move on. A minister in the holy places and the true tent of the Lord set up that the Lord set up, not man. God set up what was about to happen or what has happened since the author of Hebrews wrote this. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, talking about Jesus, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. 
They serve a copy as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Remember we talked about that on Thursday night, how, how the Passover was a copy and a shadow, a type and a shadow of what was to come, how when they, when they put blood on the doorposts and, and over the door, that that was just a type and shadow of what Jesus was going to do on the cross, and that those who were standing there looking at the cross now were seeing firsthand what had been prophesied and talked about, and they had been celebrated, would be taking place for years and hundreds, even thousands of years waiting for it to take place. All of those things, all of the things you see in the Old Testament, they were type and shadow. They were looking forward to Christ of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to put up the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it has enacted, it is enacted on better promises. So remember, we talk about the new covenant every single week when we take communion. The old covenant was fulfilled by Christ, and now we have a new and much better covenant that Christ has made with us. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need, no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish, this is from Jeremiah chapter 33, I think, I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Remember, we've talked about that, the Passover and how that led them out. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. It's not God who was unfaithful to the promise. It was the people who had not been faithful. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Listen to this. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be my God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his, uh, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. They shall all know me, for the least of, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Ultimately, this is pointing to the very end. This is talking about the very end where this is all going to live in perfect unity and we will be dwelling in God's presence. And that is what God is leading us toward is at the very end of the story, after we have all been resurrected, we are in God's presence. And now, as you, as you read in the book of Revelation, we no longer need the Son because God Himself is the light and all of the things that is going to happen when God restores everything here on the earth that we're hoping will take place. But in the meantime, we have now the gift of the Holy Spirit that actually comes and does what is talked about in this verse, that we will be God's people, that He will put His law into our minds and write them on our hearts. We are filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of truth now helps us learn and, re and understand and reveals God's truth to us. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, chapter 9. So we've already covered a whole chapter. We're doing good. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared. The first section in which uh, were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence 
It is called the holy place. I can't get to the next page. It is called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. We call it often the holy of holies, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold and which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail, although I think it's interesting that the branch we cut to use as a hyssop branch on uh, Thursday night, the the Thursday night service actually is budding. I don't think that's a miracle, though. Um, It's just a result of the sap that was already in the wood when the branch was cut off. But you can go look at it and be in awe anyway. So he's talking about the holy place and then the most holy place. There's what we call the holy of holies, and it was separated by the veil that on the day of Jesus' crucifixion was torn, and we read about that in the Gospels. Verse 6, the preparations having been made, the priests now go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but they only go into the second. The high priest goes, and he only goes once a year and not without blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Listen to this. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So he's talking about the gifts and sacrifices. They cannot perfect your conscience. They cannot cleanse your conscience and do what only God can do now with the power of the Holy Spirit. They deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But listen to this. This is amazing. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater listen, greater and more perfect tent, not a tent made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood and goats and calves like they had been doing all up until this time, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? There's the work of the Spirit of Christ that is now in us. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The dead works that we've been struggling with our whole life have been purified by the power of the Spirit in us, and now we can serve the living God. Therefore, he, Christ, is the mediator of this new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. There's what we've talked about again, the inheritance that you now are co-heirs with Christ. You're going to receive that since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where this, this should make sense to us, a, where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. A will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one 
who has made the will is alive. That makes sense to us, right? If we have someone who has died and they have a will, the will doesn't make any doesn't have any purpose or use while the person is still alive. It's not until the person dies, and then the will comes into effect. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood, for when every commandment, this Bible has the thinnest pages. They did a really good job cramming a whole lot of stuff in here. It's kind of awkward on a Sunday. There we go. The law had been declared by Moses to all the people. He took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, like we talked about, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He had to go back to heaven. Why? Because now he intercedes for us. He is our intercessor. That is what he does at the right hand of the Father. He sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for us. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the priest, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own, for he would then have to suffer repeatedly since the foundations of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Sin is put away because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. It has expired. It's going back out of sight. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. It's good stuff. Man, I could... Someday we'll do a study through the book of Hebrews, and it'll take us about 12 years, but it'll be awesome. Now, here's where I wanted to get, chapter 10. We needed that foundation for any of this to make sense. Chapter 10. Therefore, remember if you see therefore, you have to go see what the therefore was there for. So we had to read all that so we knew what the therefore was leading us into. Since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Basically, it's what we were talking about, right? It's that personal striving, and when we fail, we offer sacrifices to make up for our personal striving, and we're not able to do that. And so it's basically saying, hey, this thing that you're going to make sacrifices for year after year after year, it's never going to work. 
You can't continue to strive and push and hopefully get there on your own power and by your own might. That's what they tried for 1,500 years prior to Christ's coming, and it didn't work. They rebelled against God. They continued to walk away from Him, and God brought in a new plan. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book." Now he's going to explain it. When he said, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings. Are you still with me? Pay attention. This is the good part. We don't want to miss this. When you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. The new covenant that he has made with us by his blood, the covenant that now fills us with the Holy Spirit and enables us to be able to live this kind of life. He did away with the first to establish the second, and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ Jesus once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, going over and over and over and over again, which cannot take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, after he had done that, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool under his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit at in us, being set at work in us, being set apart for the work of God to do good works, which we have been called to do and which we've been prepared to do in advance. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Does that all make sense? Because of what Christ Jesus did now, he remembers our sins no more. And where there is forgiveness of these and the forgiveness that Christ offered, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now, therefore, everyone pull out your connection card and hold it in your hands for a minute. Just keep it there with you as we read this next section. There's a box on the front I'm going to draw special attention to. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, 
Now, remember, so we have confidence. You couldn't go in the holy places before unless you were a priest, but now because of the blood of Christ, we can go into the holy of holies because we have received the Holy Spirit. That should blow your mind if you really grasp what it means that now there is no separation, there is no dividing wall between us and God. We can now go into God's presence, and not only do we go into God's presence, but like Becky was talking about earlier, we are the dwelling place for God's presence, and when we gather together, we fill this empty building with the presence of the Spirit of God, and now He is alive and active and at work here. That is a true statement. I don't just say that every week for fun. I mean it because it's true. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since, remember, we're in this therefore statement still, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, what? Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Therefore, since all this happened, draw near to God. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And, like Becky said earlier, and what? Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more. Not Voldemort. <laughs> all the more. This is nearly 2,000 years, not quite since this has been written, but he made the statement, all the more as you see the day drawing near. What is the day? The day is the day of Christ's return when He's going to come back and receive us unto Himself. And if it was true then, all the more as you see the day drawing near, how much more true is it for us today that we should all the more? All the more what? All the more let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Can that statement be true of us? Are we in an all the more state of mind? Are we thinking in an all the more kind of a way? Or is it kind of this, well, I just don't really feel like going to church today. I don't really feel like living for Christ today. Uh, I, don't, I don't really feel like shining God's light today. So uh, I'll just, I'm just going to Maybe tomorrow I'll just I'll see how I feel in the morning. Um, uh, I, I'm not going to make any promises, but, but I'll, I might try when I wake up tomorrow. We'll see. I'll, I'll let you know how it goes. How about our approach to your spiritual family here at 6-8? Remember, a part of the work of the Holy Spirit is placing you in the body of Christ. So I believe with all of my heart that God put you here for a reason. Every single one of us, every single person that comes here, I believe God puts you here for a reason, that He has things that He wants you to do, that He has a, has a work and a ministry for you here. 
And it's not to just sit here on some Sundays. It's to be here every Sunday passionately connected with the rest of the body of Christ. It's not so that you can come and hear me teach or come and hear the band play, but it's so that you can come and draw together with the body of Christ because that is who we are, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Read it this afternoon. And that's why I had you pull out this connection card because here at the, near the bottom it says, I am making 6-8 my spiritual family. I'm committing to pray for my 6-8 family. I'm committing to memorize and live out Micah 6-8 and I'm committing to support 6-8 financially. And I will tell you, we've had, we've had quite a few people check that box, but it's not everyone. And I want to ask, what is it that's keeping you from checking that box? What's keeping you from saying, you know what, I am going to make a commitment to my spiritual family here at 6-8 Church. I'm all in. From this point forward, I mean, it is deep end for me. I'm not going to sit on the edge and, and, and dangle my feet into the end and just see how warm and comfortable the water is. I'm not just going to keep testing the waters and see if I like it. I am in all the way for good. It's a spiritual family, right? And when it's a spiritual family, then it's a commitment for all of time. And we've talked about this before, that, that when God calls you and puts you in a spiritual family, it's a covenant, right? God wants you here for a reason. So we don't cut and run when things get hard. We work through the hard stuff. If I offend you, you don't just leave church and walk away. You come and talk to me after the service, and we make peace. If someone here at the church offends you and it gets hard, you don't just run away because it gets hard. You go and talk to that person, and you make peace because we now have the fruit of love, joy, peace patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in our lives, and that is the ministry that we've been called to as a part of this church. So are we all in? Are we all in with what God is doing? And I was thinking about this, and I really wanted to illustrate this for you, and I thought, and I did some research, and I looked for some clips. You know, I really wanted to look at clips, and some of the clips that came to mind, or you know, some of the maybe even commentaries on on some of the shows that we've watched over the years because we've watched Friends. We're actually watching Friends again because when we started watching Friends, they only had the DVDs, right? And they had a season at a time that you could buy, and it's not like today where you can buy a whole series for 50 bucks. You had to buy one season for 50 bucks, and so we have a big financial investment in friends, and we're going to get our money's worth. Right, but we've, we've watched it, and we've watched some of the commentaries, and we've watched some of the interviews kind of when they get to the 10th season, and everything happens at the very end. And when there's something that happens like Friends, and it lasts for 10 seasons on the air, you start to hear these kinds of phrases at the end, right? It's like, we didn't really know how special what we were a part of was until it was coming to an end. All right, or this was, this was something really special. You can hear that in The Office, too. If you ever watch The Office or watch The Office finale, Andy makes this makes a statement, you know, you don't really know you're, that you're living in the good old days, like, until you've left them, right? And so then you look back on them, it's like, why doesn't anyone live like today is the good old days? And, and so I was just, I wanted to help maybe illustrate that today. And so Jim is going to pass out some things to, 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 to help us illustrate this. And hold on to them. Don't break them yet. You'll know exactly what they are when you get one. But I just want you to hold on to these in your hand as I kind of wrap things up. Because what I think happens is this. We live in America, and America is the most individualistic, me-first society, I think, on the planet. Maybe there are others, I don't know, but we are all about me first. I'm going to get mine, and I'm going to make my life what I want it to be. I don't need your help. I don't need you. You're just going to get in my way. 
If you get in my way, I'm going to get rid of you, and I'm going to go find someone who can help me. Right? That's kind of the thinking that we live in, and, it's, and our whole life exists so that I can get the best of what I want for me. And just like I talked about last week, you know, God might be bringing us to the end of something so that He can create a whole new life for us. And I think maybe for some of us, myself included, that that there are times when what we have to die to is my own individualistic idea of what's supposed to be. I deserve to be at this kind of a church, and I'm going to go find that church, and I'm going to go to as many different churches as I can until I find what I'm looking for. What if we changed our thinking about that? I'm I'm not saying anyone here is necessarily thinking about leaving. I know some of you are here for the first time, and uh, this is kind of an insider message, but I just wanted you to know what we're thinking. What if we changed our thinking from, I'm going to go somewhere, and I'm going to get what I want. I'm going to go somewhere, and I'm going to find what meets my needs and pleases me. What if we changed our thinking and said, you know what? God has put me here. My responsibility is not to have my needs met. My responsibility is to meet needs. I'm not here because I need something. I'm here because God has created me to give something. I'm not here to get something out of the message. I'm here to share a word of truth with those who are gathered here on a Sunday morning. That's something that I've shared. I pray every Sunday that as we're gathering together that God would not only fill me with the spirit of truth so that I can speak his truth to us, I pray that God would fill every single person that gathers here on a Sunday morning with his truth so that you may and we may and encourage one another with God's truth. And as we come together, we just kind of intermingle and all of a sudden we find this wholeness that we never experienced before because God's truth is filling us. That's something I cannot do. I cannot do that for every single person here. We do that when we gather together. But for us to become that, we kind of have to die to that. For us to become what we hope will become the marker of our church. And listen, we are, we are really well on our way to being this kind of church, but I think it's good for us to kind of constantly, can I get one of those, Jim? Constantly have reminders and calls back to the commitment that God has called us to. What is that commitment? Well, God has called us here, thank you, as 6 as 8 Church to minister to this community. We're trying strategically to re- reach this community that this building is located in. West Hazeldale, that's, that's, that's who we're trying to reach. There are a lot of lost people here in West Hazeldale. And that's our focus. That's our strategic focus. We are trying to, because we believe God put us here for a reason. He put us in this neighborhood for a reason. We're trying to make sure we're doing the very best that we can. At times, that's going to mean we have to make changes, and we're going to make a change in the food pantry to bake us more strategically about this. We're making this announcement tomorrow at our food pantry meeting. But we have been, for the whole time that we've had the food pantry here, serving all of Clark County. And as we've been serving all of Clark County, we've had more and more people coming to the food pantry to now we're at a point where we're reaching a couple hundred people every single week. But you know what else has happened as a result of that? We've had to get much faster and much more efficient so we can get that many people through. And as we've gotten that much more efficient, we've lost impact and direct conversation and relationship with the people. So while we're consumed with the numbers and the output 
the, the, we've been reading a book called uh, Charity Detox. We've been consumed with, you know, how many hundreds of thousands of pounds do we give out every single year through the food pantry? It's like half a million pounds every single year. Yeah, yay God, that's awesome, good work. How many people came to church as a result of the food pantry? Uh, one. Was it worth it for the one? Absolutely. But what if we could change things and become more effective and reach more than one? And so we are, and I don't know, you might have some rebellion against this, and if you do, please talk to me afterwards. We have a good reason for it. I just broke my stick. Uh-oh. Um, we're, we're reducing the number of zip codes that we're going to serve to the zip codes, the four zip codes that surround this area, the church. And it's for a reason. Yes, we want fewer people so that we can build relationships with more people and not just shove them through the pantry as quick as we possibly can and get them food and get them on their way, but hey, so that we can say, you know what, we, we know you're in this place in life where you need assistance. Can we come alongside you in a greater way? Can we help you in, 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 in a greater way through the struggle that you're going through? Can we just kind of come alongside you and just kind of hold your hand and help you in a better way than we are right now? Food is good, but what if we could do more than food? What if we could, through, through the principles of God's Word and God's truth and God's teaching, actually start to impart God's wisdom into people who don't know Christ, and then when their life starts getting on track, we can come to them and say, hey, you know all the stuff that's making your life better? That's Jesus, and you can't really get to where you want to go without Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. And we can help lead people to Christ through the food pantry. And so we as a church, we're committed to this area, reaching this community. But there's another aspect of it, and that's what we would call our extended community, and that's you. See, God put us here in this community. Some of you live here in these neighborhoods surrounding the church. Some of you don't. And that is the world that we live in now in this era of church. We live in a time where people commute, and instead of trying to fight against that, we are going to embrace that and say, you know what? God brought you here to this church for a reason, and because he brought you here, that means not only does he want you here at this body, at this location, but he wants you shining the light of Jesus Christ in your neighborhood, in your family, among your coworkers, and that is you, the extended community of 6-8 Church, out being the messenger of Christ, filled and empowered with the Spirit to go and shine the light. Remember way back in November, before we kind of started on this whole journey leading us to where we are today, we, we talked about we want to live a life that shines. are we? You can go listen to that sermon on the website. I would encourage you to do that. But this isn't my illustration. I actually got this from another pastor who shared it with me from another pastor. And I was, this was the week I was preparing, just spent tons, like 50 hours that week preparing for Easter. And I went to my old church up in Longview because I wanted to get out of town and kind of get some fresh thinking and, you know, fresh landscape and kind of change things up and be able to really focus. And I just ran into the guy who actually replaced me at this church, and his name was Ty. He was the worship pastor. We went to college together, great guy, doing a much better job there than I ever did while I was there. And he was just kind of sharing with me. He said, you know, uh, I was talking about Easter and what I'm hoping will happen as a result of Easter. And he said, you know, I heard this pastor say one time that you know, Ty, even a, even a glow stick doesn't shine until it's been broken.
I was going to use this last week, and I thought, no, we need to, this needs to be the end of this little mini-series that we're in, because this is what it's all leading up to, living a life that shines. See, sometimes for a beginning to happen, something has to end, right? There has to be a finale. Something has to be put to death so that new life can come out of it. And if we're going to experience new life, then we actually have to, like the seed, be put into, ground, into the ground and die. And until we do that, we remain only a single seed. But if we do that, then we become a plant that can produce 30, 60, or 100 times what was sown. And this is the call that is put on each and every one of us. The call is to daily die. Call us to daily to daily die so that why would we want to die? Why would we want to deny ourselves daily and take up the cross of Jesus daily so that we can fulfill what we've been called to fulfill as messengers of Christ? And that is to go out into the darkness and shine the light. Can you guys shut off the lights? Some of them will stay on. But isn't, just look around the room. Isn't it amazing what happens in the darkness when you have the light? Right? The light always shines. No matter how dark you are in, there is no fight between the darkness and the light. The darkness always, always retreats and repeals at the shining of the light. That is what we've been called. We've been called to go into the darkness and shine the light of God's truth and to expose the deeds of darkness with God's light, with God's truth, so that people may be drawn out of the darkness and into the marvelous light of God's kingdom, God's work, God's hope. Are you in? Are you in at a place where you will, I, you know what, I am willing to, not for 6-8, not for, for the name 6-8, not for David, certainly not for me. What a waste if you spent your life trying to do what God has called you to do for me, for a church or for any other pastor. Don't waste your life in that way. Live your life for God's glory. Shine your light for God's glory. Go into the darkness as a messenger of the light and shine the light into the darkness so that God can receive the glory. Why? So that we can build the kingdom of God and so that the kingdom of God can explode and so that those who are now living in death can experience the resurrection power of Jesus Christ and they can be filled with the Holy Spirit and receive now and have living in them the power of Christ, the resurrection power, the power that raised Christ from the dead, living in them, and he can now fill them and indwell them and they can go out into the world and they can live and shine this light. That's what we've been called to. That is what the church is about. And as we watched that video at the beginning, I just, you know, I just, I, I dream of what God wants to do for us. I don't want to become a mega church. And in fact, their story is a great story. They are a mega church. But if you follow their story, it's the Village Church out in uh, Texas. And Matt Chandler, he's a great teacher. He knows way more than I'll ever, or he's forgotten more, way more than I'll ever know. And but they, with their elders in their church, you know, they did like a lot of churches are doing. They planted satellite campuses, but now they're going and saying, hey, we don't know that this is a great idea to just have a bunch of satellite campuses of our church. We need them to break off and become autonomous churches. And so they're taking a lot of their, church, their campuses and making them their own satellite autonomous churches so that they can reach that community. And, but I just dream of what God wants us to do. You know, maybe God wants us to plant a church someday. 
Maybe he wants us to, to take this mission and, and, and spread it just a little bit further. Maybe he wants us to, to create ministries that have never existed in this community before so that through the ministry we can draw people who are not normally attracted to the light into a place where the true light shines and we can share with them the light of Jesus Christ. Maybe that's why you're here. Have you thought of that? Maybe God brought you here because there's a ministry that doesn't exist yet at this church and he needs you to create it here. That's why God drew you here. Could be a lot of reasons why God has brought us to a place like this. But none of them exist, none of them happen if we kind of hold on to our own dreams, our own desires, and say, you know what, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go in, I'm not gonna jump in all the way until. There's no until until has already been fulfilled. Just jump in. What's keeping you? What's holding you back from saying, this is my spiritual family. I'm going to commit. I'm here. I'm going to be here every Sunday. Not because David is awesome, but because I want to be here to communicate with the others God's truth. I want to encourage them. I want to share with them what God is teaching me. I want to, I'm not going to wait for them to create community for me. I'm going to start creating my own community. I'm going to invite people over to my house. We're going to go out to lunch after church. We're going to get together and get to know one another. We're just going to kind of do and take on the ownership of what God has called me to do here. I'm not going to wait for someone else to make it happen. I'm not going to wait for someone to ask me to get involved in a ministry here at the church. I'm going to see what areas need help, and I'm just going to jump in, and I'm going to serve because that's what God has called me to do. He created me with strengths and abilities, and he's given me spiritual gifts so I can go and do these things. I'm, I'm done waiting for someone to do it for me. I now, because I have the Spirit, can go do it for myself. I have the power. I'm going to go. I'm going to go. I'm going to go. And what would happen if we just followed in the spirit of our ancestors who started back at uh, all the way back with Peter when they received the Holy Spirit? And we just said, you know what, God, fill me with your spirit so that I may live and speak and shine your truth. What would happen if we committed our lives to that kind of life? Imagine the impact that we could have just sitting in this room. If this one week, just one week, I'm not talking about the whole year, I'm talking about this week in front of us right now. If we left this place and we were determined and decided from this day forward for this week ahead of me, I'm going to go out and every day I'm going to break my life, I'm going to die to what I was, I'm going to take up the cross of what Jesus has called me to carry, and I'm going to shine my light in into the darkness, and I'm going to live for Christ in a dark and unbelieving world. Do you know what? I, I think in one week, this community would just start to be transformed. I think in a month's time, we would start to feel the tangible effects of the kingdom of God taking root in this town and in the towns that are connected because of where you are. And I think with even, even a short time like a year, everything around this town could change. I think, I think drugs and crime and violence and poverty and homelessness and all of that stuff would start to just kind of melt away because God would, through his power and still and every single one of his believers that are already believers and going to be believers the power to overcome the brokenness of this fallen and dark life and live now in the resurrected bright shining hopeful light of Jesus Christ and I think everything would change but the question is are we going to do it or are we just going to sit here and wait for another day let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. It is no accident that the author of Hebrews put this paragraph after he talked about the work of Jesus Christ, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and all that has been done. He put it there on purpose because that's what they needed to hear. That's what we need to hear. Are you in 
Or are you going to wait for someone to do what they can't do, but what Christ has already done for you? Let's stand together. Will you pray with me? I know I went a little bit long this morning. I ask your forgiveness for that. I just ask that you bow your heads and close your eyes. I want you to think, if you will, Let the Spirit of God, who truly is alive and active and at work in this place, reveal things to you. Father, in this moment, what needs to die in us so that you can produce new life? Bring that to our minds. Bring it up. Bring it fresh right now, I pray, that you would show us those things in our life that need to die. whether it's attitudes, whether it's arrogance and pride, a sin we just don't want to give up, something we want to cling to, who knows what it might be. Whatever it is, Father, bring that to our mind right now in this moment. And now, Father, I pray that you would teach us, reveal to us, show us what it means to put that to death. To see that being put to death on the cross with Christ. And to see whatever is motivating us to keep that and to hold on to that and to not let go of that as being carried to that cross as well. Father, I pray that whatever guilt and shame is still holding on and clinging to us, clinging to our souls and keeping us trying to live out and prove something, whatever there is that is rooted deep in us. Father, I pray now by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would do some deep, deep surgery, that you'd get out the excavator, that you'd get out the jackhammer, and you'd get out whatever tools you need to go in deep and get out every single root that has established this old thinking, this pattern of the old man, this pattern of who we once were, to to just root it out once and for all, and now by the power of the Spirit, alive and active and at work in me and in the heart of every believer, Father, I pray that you fill us now and replace that with the presence and the Spirit of God, that you may empower us and fill us to do and live your good works and your good deeds for your glory so that the world may know that you are alive, that you are not dead. He is not there in that grave. He is not anywhere buried under the ground, but he is risen. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he sent his Spirit to empower me to live this kind of life for you so that now you might be able to see God's glory through the way that I live. And Father, I pray for us as a church community that this moment right here as we're gathered together that you would, in this very moment, deeply, profoundly, passionately root us in the call of being one of your disciples. Father, I pray that we'd stop taking for granted all of the work that you have done throughout the thousands of years since you resurrected and ascended. But Father, 
bring them to life in our minds, make them ever so vivid in our thinking that we cannot help but go and change our lives from this point forward. And Father, I pray that you use this church to build your kingdom, that you use this church to shine brightly the light of Jesus Christ, that you use this church to wave over the community of Hazeldell the banner of Christ. Father, that we would just, just pour out ourselves, pour out our lives in this community, and that, that we would find that as we pour ourselves out like a drink offering, that we surrender ourselves and everything we have to the mission of God on our lives, that we would start to see people coming to a knowledge, to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that you use us to build your kingdom here. I pray that you use us to build the kingdom of God, that you would use us to build only your kingdom, to make only your name great, and that people would always know when they come to 6-8 Church, they're going to find Jesus, they're going to have an experience with the ever-living, almighty God, and they're going to walk out changed forever by the Spirit of God that changes us forever, and that they would be able to find what they've been looking for. Father, I pray not only for us on Sundays that that would be the case, but Father, I pray that you would empower us and help us to live boldly among our friends. Help us to live boldly among our neighbors. Help us to shine brightly the light of Jesus Christ among our family that don't yet believe. Help us to shine brightly the light of Christ even among our family that does believe, but they're still trying to live it out on their own power and help us, Father, to replace that lie with the truth. And Father, help us to live out this truth and to shine brightly the light of Jesus Christ among our coworkers. Anyone you give us the chance to interact with, may you shine brightly through every life that has gathered here this morning. And Father, may we always, from this point forward, live and shine and share and passionately declare the resurrection power of the resurrected King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.